This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, They Shall Bear You Up, Memories of a Catholic Priest. And the author is Faulkner Joseph Hart, a Monsignor, and uh, we welcome Joseph to iUniverse Radio. Hello. Hello, Steve. Good to have you with us, Joseph. Uh, this is quite a story. It's your story, your memoirs of uh, your life as a priest, and also right from the early beginnings when you were nine years old. But before we get into some of the details, let me read a couple of things that you have written. In this memoir, Joseph narrates his journey to priesthood, from answering the call to walking the roads with the Lord proclaiming his kingdom, listening to him in one's heart, and going among his people with compassion and love. Also, you write, a testimony of faith, they shall bear you up, emphasizes that as human beings we are never alone, and that for those who wish to carry out God's will in their lives, nothing is impossible with God. Well, those are great uh, words and uh, something we should all be thinking about in everyday life, shouldn't we? Well, they're straight from St. Luke, so uh, you can't go wrong on that. <laughs> you can't go wrong. <laughs> well, Joseph, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and why you wrote the book. Well, I've been a priest for 50 years. Uh, I, uh, I'm retired now, living in, in Orlando, Florida. And uh, I've had a very, a very full life, a very fulfilling life as well. I'm, you might say that I'm a, a very happy person, and uh, life has been good to me. I've had my ups and downs, but uh, the priesthood has been uh, a joyous, a joyous call for me. And uh, it took uh, different twists on the road to get me there. Uh, but uh, I followed the the road, so to speak, and sometimes it was the road less traveled. But uh, I, nevertheless, uh, we got there, and then uh, the Lord called me to uh, do work that I would never have foreseen in, in my wildest dreams as regards uh, the erection of this shrine basilica in Orlando. It was not planned, of course, to be a, a basilica. In case you're wondering what a basilica is, Steve, it's a... It's a church that is uh, particularly uh, noticed by by Rome, by the Holy Father in Rome, and uh, it's given a, a special title, the title of Basilica. A Basilica church, in other words, is a church that really is under the auspices of the Pope himself, and if the Holy Father, for example, were to come to Florida, uh, this church here in Orlando would be one of the churches he would come to, because it's a Basilica. And uh, you might say it's his church. But I had no notion that we would, I would see that in my own lifetime or that I would, that anything like that would take place. We were trying to really fulfill the needs of the tourists. And, you know, Walt Disney World opened in uh, 1970 or 71. I think it was 71, actually. And uh, suddenly 
you know, thousands of people began to throng to Orlando, and uh, the Disney World uh, empire is really located outside the city and away from the uh, away from the churches and so on. So we had to do something for the tourists. Bishop Grady asked me if I would do something for the tourists. And we began that work in 1975, and uh, it led to the completion of the of what's now the Basilica of Mary, Queen of the Universe. You so, make you make comments about in light of some of the uh, controversy, some of the news about priests, Catholic priests who have struggled, uh, and. Often people won't step forward. Men won't step forward uh, because of that. Parents aren't encouraging. Uh, uh, what are your feelings about that? Well, sometimes I, I think, you know, I think that sometimes, and I've seen it once or twice, where parents discourage their sons from becoming priests or uh, advise them at least to delay it for a while until they experience the... Uh, secular life for a while and uh, that results in the normally in the young man never coming back again to, to the priesthood occasionally they do but I think uh, the vocations have gone down in the church that's one of the reasons I think that the that vocations in the church have, have diminished is because uh, young men are, are sort of uh, warned off uh, by those they love and those who love them to uh, be careful, so to speak, as if it were something, a very dangerous uh, sort of a calling. And, in, and as against that, it's it's a very wonderful calling. It's a, a calling that can bring great fulfillment and uh, uh, great satisfaction to one's life if one stays close to God. Your book is filled with many and varied stories, and you show that the priesthood is not for weaklings. Well, that's true. You know, there's a, they, again, the church is, is very human. You know, it's, uh, it's divinely founded, but it's made up of human beings, and it's certainly divinely inspired, and the Holy Spirit is with us. But uh, we are still human beings, and uh, uh, you are going to come across all the variations of humanity uh, within the church that you may come across within the secular world. And the fact that somebody's ordained a priest does not change his nature. So uh, that's the the other side of it. So you have to be prepared to uh, deal with these problems when they come, uh, when you meet them, and uh, that uh, you've got you're going to have to be ready to sort of face them down and to know who you are yourself as you come up against them. It seems that your book is very comprehensive. It's over 300 pages long, and as we've already pointed out, many stories, uh, varied stories. Let's talk about a few just to give people an understanding of of how you decided to uh, choose certain uh, experiences. Now, you talk about Marcia uh, Peterszak. Is that right? Yes, that's right, yes. Marcia or Marcia? Marsha. Marsha Peterszak, and she gets her own chapter. Now, tell us about why you did this. Because I believe, you know, as you go through life, uh, people, uh, you meet people who have uh, a particularly effect for good upon you. And at that particular time, I, if you read the chapters before that, which I'm sure you have anyway, uh, I'd come through a rather dark corridor in my life. And... Uh, 
I attended to uh, sort of lessen my belief in human beings up to a point. And uh, when she came on, uh, she was like a breath of fresh air. She had a, a very positive outlook on life, and she had uh, and has a very deep Catholic faith. And uh, she was a lady and is a lady who knows exactly where she's going. And uh, I was stumbling in, in many ways at the time because I had sort of developed a mistrust of, of you might say, of human nature because of the storm I'd been through. And uh, she came on the scene, and as I related the book, you know, she she quickly, her, her whole attitude quickly turned me around and quickly showed me that... Uh, Hey, you know, I need to get off this fence and start uh, stop being sorry for myself and get with it. And uh, I would say that she had uh, an awful lot to do with uh, with uh, the you might say the development of my priestly life thereafter. By the way, by her own attitude and by her faith. Well, people can have a profound effect upon us, especially when we're maybe seeking. Uh more about ourselves or going through some uh, challenging times. Uh, now, this Basilica of the National Shrine of Mary, Queen of the Universe, and of course it's well known now throughout the United States and even abroad. Give us some of the challenges, the obstacles when you first, uh, did you did you catch a vision of this right at the beginning or did it kind of evolve? Well, it didn't evolve, no. You might say, in a sense, that it was a vision, that it, uh, it was uh, something that developed. Uh, we, you see, we started uh, the, all these thousands of people were coming to Orlando. There was no church uh, anywhere near the, the theme park complexes. And uh, so we were going around to hotels. We had made arrangements with hotels for masses in the hotels and you know as I mentioned in the book I tell stories about some of where some of those masses took place and so on but it was, it was obvious that this couldn't go on forever you know the, that the numbers would grow this was back in 1975 76 77 and it was very obvious that the, the numbers would grow and that uh, we would have to get a facility of our own in some way or other so having having uh, that idea that, that, that the certainty that we had to do something, we decided why not do something really good, something worthwhile. That uh, if uh, Cinderella, who's a, a fairy tale, could have a castle, you know, why couldn't why couldn't the Lord of Love have his own place too, and make it really worthwhile for Catholics all over the world to come and see? And that's how the whole notion sort of started. Now, your book, again, starts from your early beginnings and, of course, talks about your upbringing, your experiences of the Irish strife against the British. Now, what kind of an impact did that have on you? Well, it depends on how you, you know, how I would accept that uh, question. Uh, it had an impact in that, you know, I came from, uh, my father was, uh, he came from a rebel family. I tell the story there of his brother in the book and what happened to him and uh, how he was treated. And uh, if you've seen the movie, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, uh, that was him, the, the man who was, who, was, uh, who was captured and tortured. Uh, th th that was that man. My father was uh, a very quiet man, the kind of man you wouldn't expect to be, uh, you might say, a rebel, but uh, he was a very quiet man. But nevertheless, he had very firm beliefs. 
and he uh, believed very much in the freedom of the individual and he believed of course in the freedom of Ireland as well and so did his family and as a result of that I think those uh, all of that was passed on to to his family so of course I grew up with that too and uh, so I grew up with the, that whole notion of the uniqueness of the individual and that we are all uh, uh, we're all special and that we all have our own rights and and should be treated accordingly were there many, uh, was there much opposition against what has become the Basilica, and if there were, why? Well, in the beginning, well, that's one of the, I've never, there was a lot of opposition at the beginning. It was sort of a subterranean uh, opposition, if you like, but it was there, it was very strongly there. Uh, I think, uh, I suppose, in a way, the idea was big, you know, the idea was, was sort of, very new and uh, it was therefore uh, something that people had to latch on to and on top of that uh, you always get the the very human side where people are tend to be jealous or say well why is he doing that or uh, who does he think he is or you know no prophet is accepted in his own country and that led to uh, a, a varied amount of, of opposition. Now, the bishop, of course, uh, was very good at the time. The bishop was a really good man, and he supported the idea, and he approved of the idea. But uh, there were people within his, his office who, were, uh, I would say, were very much against it and, and would have liked to have, have torpedoed the whole idea of their code. And there was even an investigation about the church? Ah, well, that was afterwards. That was a whole different administration. That was uh, that was the mystery. Uh, that was the the investigation came after I retired. It was a an investigation into my uh, methods of administration, and uh, I never heard any more about the investigation, which means that it it died on the vine. Obviously, uh, that uh, as I said in the book is one of those mysteries of life that uh, somebody had an idea somewhere and it, as I said as I mentioned uh, the human thing again possibly of jealousy or uh, I'm going to get even or you know I, I have no notion why that t took place but uh, I wasn't notified it seemed to be against every uh, every rule in the book and the, of fair play and everything else but you know life is like that at times and uh, as I said, uh, all I did was laugh at the end of it because there was uh, there, uh, my time at the Basilica was, was ended, my job was done, and I was now retired. So it didn't really matter what, what decisions were come to, and apparently no decisions were come to because I never had any further communication on it at all. Joseph, we have about a minute left. Uh, give us some concluding thoughts about your life and your memoirs, your book. Well, I, I think that I've had a great life. I've been blessed to meet some wonderful, wonderful people. And I, as I say in the book, I'm a different person now to the man who began my priesthood. And I'm a different person to the man who began work on the tourist ministry in Orlando because of all the wonderful faith and the wonderful enthusiasm for the kingdom of God in the people that I've met. And... Uh, the people who helped me to build the shrine are very, very unique people. And uh, it was sort of a miracle in a sense that all of these people happened to be there just when they were needed. 
and uh, you know, I'll go to my grave with with gratitude to God for uh, having blessed me with with uh, the success and with the friends and and uh, with all the graces that were poured into my life. The title of the book: They Shall Bear You Up. Memories of a Catholic Priest, and the author is Fakna Joseph Hart. Joseph, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's uh, published by iUniverse, and I presume it will be on uh, available on in some of the bookstores, and also, of course, on Amazon.com and some of the other uh, internet uh, resources or sources. Well, thank you, Joseph. Thanks so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. And thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Comprehending the Climate Crisis, Everything You Need to Know About Global Warming and How to Stop It. And the author is Dr. Bradley J. Dibble, and Dr. Dibble joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Dibble. Hi, how are you, Steve? Well, great to have you with us. This certainly is a very controversial subject. The climate crisis, Uh, let me read what you have written. You take a very solid stance. You say this, comprehending the climate crisis is a valuable source for anyone wanting to learn about the important problem our planet is facing and what we need to do about it. It provides one-stop shopping 
covering all the issues pertaining to global warming and is easy to read for everyone. Readers will learn about the science, the problems created by greenhouse gas emissions, and the solutions available. I guess the key here is it's easy to read. It's for all of us because this can kind of uh, be quite overwhelming to uh, most of us, you know, the average American and the average, uh, I guess, uh, dweller uh, upon the planet Earth, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's been one of the issues. Um, When I started to get into this issue a number of years ago, uh, really just for personal reasons, I was interested in the, the science behind it and wanted to make sure I understood it. And I've probably read about 50 books on the topic since then, but I found that most of them were either um, too simple uh, without covering all of the bases or were really just preachy about saying, here's what you need to do without really explaining why. And any of the books that did explain were, were almost exhaustive, usually written by climate scientists. And so they were, they, they were very heavy in the science and they were very long. And I think the average person who wanted to start learning about this would have been intimidated by those books on the shelves and wouldn't have, have picked them up. So. Uh, eventually the book I wrote was the one I wish I could have read first when I wanted to start learning about this because it covers it all without getting too bogged down, without being too lengthy. Now, you're a cardiologist. Uh, What's the motivation here? Um, Well, it's an interesting uh, question. Um, I think first and foremost, I would just say it's because I'm an interested citizen of this planet and I want to do what I can do to try to help. And I think this is one thing I thought I could tackle about it. But but I think it's more to it than that. as a cardiologist, I give a lot of education to the public through seminars and through interviews, and uh, I think I'm pretty reasonable about taking some of the complicated issues that we deal with in medicine and explaining them simply enough so that the average person can understand them. So I thought, well, if I'm a half reasonable at that, maybe I can apply that to this issue. And then I think also as a physician, I think our duty is to care for not just those who step foot in our offices, but for everyone. You know, there's a lot of physicians who've gotten on board about things like smoking bans or wearing helmets. And and those are things where those aren't their, their own patients, but they're trying to help society at large. And I think that uh, this issue of global warming is now so important to me now that I'm I'm so much better educated on it. I thought I just got to do what I can to help the the first people who are going to be affected by uh, global warming with respect to health issues are patients with cardiac and pulmonary problems, and I see those sorts of patients. So yeah, I I think there's a good tie-in to me as a physician. But you're right, I'm not a climate scientist. I think maybe that's one advantage about this book because. Those books tend to be, as I said, a little too exhaustive in the material. Now, your book is broken down into three sections. You have one titled The Background, and then uh, another one called The Problem, and then the third section, The Solution. So let's kind of give a little overview maybe of each section. Uh, Obviously, we don't have time to go into details, but give us a little bit on The Background. Well, yeah, that was when I started to ask questions about things like, um, you know, I'd heard that uh, of the fossil fuels, carbon was worth and natural gas was cleanest. And I wanted to understand why that was. And I kind of wanted to understand what are fossil fuels? Uh, You know, are they just dead dinosaurs? And and so I kind of had to go back into that information. And really, it had to go right back to the beginning. So I take this reader, uh, assuming they know nothing about 
about the science involved or even about science principles like physics or chemistry, but I take them through what carbon is, why it's on our planet, how it got to the different spots it is on our planet, how it moves around on our planet, and, and what has been happening since Earth formed four and a half billion years ago. And then that's, that background gives them enough examples that when we start to deal with a little bit more of the say the science of combustion of those fossil fuels in the problem section, they've already got a little bit of the background about um, some of the equation, you know, scientific reactions, how something oxidizes. They've already gone through that in that background. So I, I kind of, I sneak that in there. I sneak the science in there when I'm explaining about um, just what the, what carbon has been doing on our planet for most of our planet's history until the Industrial Revolution hit, and we started to change things. In the next section, the problem, I start addressing, okay, here's, here's what we've been doing now for the last few hundred years. We've been burning these fossil fuels. We've been generating a lot of emissions. Um, understandably, that was what has really transformed our, our world into the technological marvel it is today. But as a result, we've been um, altering the climate, uh, as, as hard as that is to believe for some people, the scientific facts behind it are really unequivocal. And that's why almost every scientist on the planet agrees that this is real. This isn't something that is um, as controversial as, as perhaps other things like should we take a democratic or a republican approach to um, solving the economy. Um, and so what, what we end up what I end up covering in the section about the problem itself is making sure people are up to, to scratch on all of the facts. Um, what happens when we burn fossil fuels? Do we have evidence that the uh, carbon dioxide levels have been increasing? Do we have evidence about uh, that temperatures have been increasing? Do we have evidence that the ice caps are melting? and all of those sorts of things. And I even extend it a little bit further into what other problems we will face, not just the ones we're facing today, but in the future. And then in section three, I deal with the solutions. And I take it in a very straightforward approach. I have um, a chapter on what we can do as individuals, as families, things we can do right in our own home, from cost savings to, co to things that might cost us more, but at least we're doing the right thing. And then I have a chapter on what uh, society can do, what business and government can do. And I also have a chapter on the hurdles. So that if somebody becomes a real believer in this issue that we have to make changes, the last chapter, chapter eight, it addresses why uh, it's been frustrating that things haven't moved forward, but how human nature is such that it, it's not going to change overnight. We're slow in this process of accepting issues and changing for the greater good if it means a little bit of a... Um, taking a sacrifice in the present. That's where I refer to this issue of sustainable development. Sustainable development means we have to do what's right both for today and for the future and balance it out. You say that it doesn't take a lot of effort for families to dramatically reduce their carbon footprints. In fact, you claim that your family lives, quote, carbon neutral with a net emissions count of zero. Now explain that. Um, yeah, I, we do. And uh, there's all, obviously there's lots of things that I think are relatively common sense, like turning off the lights when you leave a room and when you, um, 
trying to walk or bike rather than drive. And there's all those little things, but that still isn't going to get you carbon neutral. In the book, I go through all sorts of different things that are available to people. And what we have done in our family, when we, again, took this problem seriously, we explored everything. We had people over who would tell us what was involved if we were going to get solar panels. We had people over who were going to tell us what was involved if we did geo exchange, which is what a lot of people call geothermal, but trying to get the heat from ground. And um, all of them were obviously very pricey to explore. And what we ended up deciding to do is go with something that's available in uh, almost every province in Canada, I think, except one called Bullfrog. And I refer to it and I would anticipate that there are companies in the U.S. that are doing this too. But what Bullfrog does is it can supply you green electricity and green natural gas. So essentially when you're purchasing from them, you're drawing from the regular grid, both in electricity and in natural gas, but everything you uh, draw from is immediately replaced by uh, electricity that's completely generated in green ways and also the natural gas is generated in green ways so that we're not really adding to the grid in that regard. So we still pay our normal utility companies like everybody else, but we pay an extra fee to bullfrog for this uh, green electricity. So that's the main way because electricity is huge. Um, and, uh, and if you use natural gas in your homes, again, although it's better than carbon, it still uh, generates emissions. So that's how we deal with that part of it. With respect to our fuel consumption for our vehicles, we purchase carbon offsets. Um, so again, this is where we pay to a company. We know how much fuel we consume in the average month and we pay a company so that the amount of carbon dioxide we generate from that process is offset by things like um, planting trees. And often those are um, in totally different continents, far away from where we live, but because it's a global problem, that's okay. And likewise, when we travel, uh, we can purchase carbon offsets for those trips so that when we are flying on vacation, say down south in the middle of the winter, um, we can purchase that so that we're not generating emissions from that either. Now, all of those solutions, as you can appreciate, uh, are costly. Um, and so that's not necessarily something everybody can do, but that's what we've managed to do because we take it seriously. And every purchase we make now is as energy efficient as possible. The last car we got was a hybrid. It ended up costing probably about $20,000 more than if we didn't get the hybrid version. But again, we wanted to make sure that our fuel consumption was as efficient as possible. So I do think we put our money where our mouth is in this family about the issue. I'd like to ask you a two-part question. What makes you most optimistic that we can solve this problem? And then, of course, what makes you the least optimistic? Uh, that's a really good question. I think that I'm most optimistic because uh, we have seen the nations of the world come together previously, tackle an environmental issue, and be successful about it. And that's in 1987, the Montreal Protocol that attacked CFCs. Remember, that was in all the stuff like in Freon and uh, in aerosol cans. And this, these were the things that were destroying the ozone layer mm -hmm. where we developed a large ozone right. hole. And that was, uh, that was an economic decision that was going to hurt uh, some groups, some companies, but uh, the nations of the world recognized it was, it was something that needed to be done. The ozone layer is very important to protect us from UV radiation, and so um, they did it. And although it took some time to see the changes, we are now seeing a few decades later, 
we're seeing the ozone layer improving and moving in the right direction. So that makes me optimistic because if it could have been done once, it could be d done again. I think uh, as part of that, though, and it's, this is where my, my pessimism comes too because that was something that involved billions of dollars. And this is something that's going to involve many trillions of dollars because our global economy is so wrapped up in fossil fuels, you know, it's the backbones of the economy and I think it explains a lot of things about why, uh, why things happen in the Middle East the way they do because that's where a lot of the oil is. And, um, and unfortunately, it's, uh, we're so entrenched in it that it's going to be really hard to veer from that path when it's going to cost everybody more to do so. I, I do, deep down, I think that um, all of the renewable energy sources like wind and solar uh, and geothermal, I think they can be great for the economy. They can generate jobs. And when you develop technologies, that always is, is uh, a great thing for an economy. But I guess maybe until push comes to shove where we're forced to, either because we've run out of oil um, or because the problem has become so severe with global warming that we have no choice. I'm, I'm worried that the nations of the world are going to say, well, wait a second, though. I mean, this is, this is easy for us. It's, it's good for our economy. For example, here in Canada, we have a lot of oil out in the um, Alberta, the Athabasca oil sands or tar sands. It's all in a form of bitumen, uh, but it's something that can be uh, brought out from the ground. It's mined and then it's cleaned up. And um, there's the, the the Keystone pipeline that uh, was going to transfer a lot of it down into the states. And uh, and then there's been concerns that maybe the U.S. isn't going to be so forthcoming and taking it. And Canada says, well, we'll just send it to China. But it, you know, the problem for us in Canada is it's generating a lot of jobs to do that. And so if people might say, well, we can't do that, it's dirty oil, it's bad for the environment, uh, but then if your job depends on it or if your country's economy depends on it, it's hard to say no no to that. So, so it's going to be tough. And I think the other part of the problem, what we've seen within things like the recent Copenhagen Accord is... A lot of countries say, well, why should we take the big hit? I mean, other countries are still doing this. Why, why shouldn't they be the first ones? And so it kind of nobody wants to, to be the one to first stick their neck out. Until all the countries come together, it's, it's going to be tough, and that's not easy. I mean, it happened in 87 with the Montreal thing with CFCs, but it's, I don't know. That, I'm pessimistic that this is going to be a really tough thing for the world to come together on. A final uh, comment from you. We have about a minute. I just want to read a statement, and if you would comment on this. Uh, the statement is, we have a responsibility to future generations to solve this problem before it's too late. Um, absolutely. I envision uh, a few generations from now and people looking back and saying, you guys knew what you needed to do, uh, and yet you didn't do it, and you've left us with this planet that's uh, in real trouble. What the heck were you thinking? I, I think we do have um, that responsibility. Every generation has pretty much left the planet better than it was when they first took charge of it. And I'm worried that maybe our generation is going to be the first one to not have that situation for our children and our grandchildren. It's our responsibility to make it a better place. The title of the book, Comprehending the Climate Crisis. Everything you need to know about global warming and how to stop it. And the author is Dr. Bradley J. Dibble. Dr. Dibble, tell us how to get your book. 
Um, well, it's uh, certainly available on iUniverse.com in their bookstore. It's uh, also available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble online, and uh, in for Canadians. Uh, we have it on uh, chapters.ca online, and it is in some bookstores in Ontario as well. So all of those places online is the easiest way to get it. So. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book restoring power to parents and places and the author is richard s cordish and richard joins us now on iUniverse radio hello rich hi steve restoring power uh, to parents and places that is so needed today and you're going to get into the reasons why with us uh, first of all though i'd like to read what you've written about your book just to kind of give an overall view for everyone this book shows how to conduct community development so that it empowers families to be more productive through the expansion of their own enterprises, through sustainable practices at home, by growing food, through co-teaching their children and in collaboration with schools and through creative uses of their own habitats. It also details historically how the family's productive capacities became threatened and why that is a problem for children, communities, and society. Well, a very comprehensive uh, approach. And 
Your background, Rich, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and also why you felt a need, um, why you were motivated to write this book. Okay. Well, I, uh, I've been in the, we're in the community development field for over, over 30 years. I went right in to working as a community organizer after, uh, uh, graduate school and, um, and I went into the field because I really liked the idea of, of going into a neighborhood or going into a, a town or going into a region and, and helping the people there, you know, plan, uh, how to make their places work better, whether it's improving education or economic development or making places safe, safer. And, um, when I started the work in the, ni- in the 1970s, um, I kind of assumed, and, and rightly so back then, I believe, families would be central and part of the process. And so I was doing neighborhood organizing in different places um, around Chicago, and then I moved to Pennsylvania and worked there. Um, but over time, in my work in this field, uh, and I've also taught this work, how to do this in universities, and I've written about it, um, over time, the, the whole process of community development has changed in that it's become more about what really organizing the formal systems like like the education system or health care agencies or social service agencies or or um, uh, formal business development you know organizations and 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 less about uh, the families as 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 you might say productive players in the creation of the community and uh, and I think that's happened because over over the over over time um, the expansion of these other formal systems such as schools and school comprehensive schools and and agencies and has kind of um, displaced families mothers and fathers from the productive roles that they need really the community needs them to be playing and that their children need to be them to be playing so I wrote the book uh, after uh, and also, of course, I'm a father of four children, and I've been raising kids, my own kids, since 1987 with my wife, Maureen, and um, so I saw this through the f- sort of a father's angle as well, and um, really feel like our, the field needs to be kind of confronted with this importance of the productive family and um, uh, engaged in some debate and conversation about what happened there and, and why are families not present as they had been and as producers of not just in an economic sense but also of food or of education or of safety or other things that the community needs and then how do we um, think start to think about community development as a process that can rebuild those capacities in ways that make sense today so the family basically is that foundation for the, uh, that foundational unit, that basic unit of that neighborhood. And how goes the family? That's how the neighborhood goes in the community, in the state, in the nation. I agree with that's right. And and um, that that on the one hand is is a statement that lots of folks will, of course. Agree with. On the other hand, in a reality in the in the community development field, um, you often find that the real practice of community development involves mostly uh, people working in their formal positions and their agencies and schools and and, and other kinds of uh, capacities and 
families aren't there, uh, or they might be spoken of as clients or consumers, um, but not as not as co-producers of what the community needs needs to be uh, generating for the for the community to work well. One of your chapters is titled "Creating Productive Roles for Mothers and Fathers." How does power matter? Yeah. Yeah, well, the power is uh, real central to this whole book, and I, um, you know, power can be a, uh, in some ways, uh, kind of a difficult concept for folks to, to to grapple with. But but I define power in there, and I, and I draw on some research uh, from a writer, uh, a philosopher, Stephen Lukes, and um, basically, power. The way I look at it is um, one when when one entity has the entity being an organization or an individual has the uh, ability to get another entity to behave uh, differently. And uh, sometimes power can be exercised effectively so that um, uh, people are being moved to behave or to uh, realize their goals uh, in a positive sense. But also power can be used to diminish the roles uh, in, in this case, in the case of the book of parents, um, so that, um, say, the, the father's role as teacher might be diminished by the expansion of formal education in schools, or um, the family's role as food producer might be uh, might be narrowed by uh, or displaced by the expansion of uh, large, large agriculture and and um, and. Um, uh, the food distribution system, uh, or the family's role in um, even being able to start take care of themselves economically by having their own business might be uh, displaced or narrowed uh, by the by the way homes are built or by the way uh, um, capital isn't made available uh, for uh, for small family enterprises. So. Over time, that power that came from the expansion of the of the formal systems kind of compressed, and I, the term I use, thinned the role of of mothers and fathers to where uh, the roles are, are are narrower and they're doing fewer things in a productive sense than they used to be. Uh, almost to this, and I think many feel almost like the role has become um, so difficult to to take on that uh, that people opt out. Sometimes. What is family-generated community building? Well, that is doing that is the that is taking the community development process, uh, which uh, is a participatory process in a neighborhood or a town or a village or a, or a region, uh, and taking that process and building consideration of of the productive. Uh, potentials and assets, and also needs and limitations of families um, in in the planning process, and it's a process that enables families to use their homes and their habitat and their land more productively for business purposes, for food production, or for other maybe uh, even um, homeschooling or co-schooling. Um, it involves helping families um, 
from that base of being more productive also get involved in, in local decision-making and politics or planning so that their voices are heard when decisions about land use or, or education are, are on the table in the local, uh, in the local community. So it's partly about uh, helping families become, the, become producers uh, effectively, but also the drawing on all the benefits from that that the community gains uh, from families being uh, engaged and, and, and powerful enough to, uh, to have real voices in how the, how the community is shaped. Tell us about co-schooling. You know, I had some experience with that myself. The idea is there uh, with co-schooling is that um, it's not necessarily pure homeschooling in which the uh, parents are um, are doing all the teaching of kids at home. But um, co-schooling is a a partnership between a family and a school in which a family, uh, mom or dad, or the mom and mom and dad together, uh, um, will. Uh, Take up some of the some of the formal teaching that that goes on in in the district. So, my, my wife and I did this when my two of my sons who were really having a hard time in the in the middle school uh, some years ago. We negotiated with the school when they were in seventh grade to um, have them come home, and we uh, we taught them. My wife and I taught our twin sons. Um, all their formal classes at home. Uh, so we, we bought a curriculum from a homeschooling company, uh, first rate, you know, good quality uh, material. We taught them history and literature and uh, math and the science. And then um, when they, but then we didn't want them, our sons to be, uh, you know, cut off from the school or from the kids in the neighborhood and everything. So they, they would go to the school for their art and, um, Music and physical education, and we would we had uh, kind of team meetings with some of the staff there occasionally about how the teaching was going, and uh, they were comfortable with the materials we were using that they were you know um, good enough quality educational materials, and then um, and then the school allowed uh, our, my sons to to walk, so we did that in seventh and eighth grade, and they allowed my sons to walk in, in the graduation ceremony at the school uh, when. Uh, when their class was ready to graduate. So co-schooling is, and it, that's just one example, co-schooling really is is much more possible, I think, than people might realize, uh, given how many good homeschoolers out there, how many good homeschooling materials are out there. You know, co-schooling is, is an arrangement where, where the parents do some of the, some of the schooling, uh, and, uh, and the school does... Uh, does does other aspects of the schooling and together they work out this um, this kind of partnership. Well, and really uh, hoping to ensure the greatest product of a family, uh, the children, and you know eventually they're going to hopefully be productive uh, members of society. Right. Yeah. And uh, so whatever it takes. Absolutely. I mean, that's in the end. That's. That's why. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. <laughs> exactly. Yes, and you, and you're pointing that out very emphatically and uh, helping us catch a greater vision of this. Now, how could a poor community in a inner city use family enterprises to make its neighborhood safer and more economically vital? Yeah. Well, there are um, uh, 
unfortunately, now the which is different from when I first entered the field, there there are a lot of um, say community development corporations and and other kinds of even units at like community colleges that are pretty good at training um, people in starting how to start enterprises and and. Um, there's a lot of land in inner city communities. Uh, there's a lot of space, even sometimes buildings that are not being used used at all. And um, and there's a lot of enterprising energy in in, uh, in inner, inner city communities. And um, and so there there are assets there, and there are people who want to sort of get more control of their lives. And 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 there's a lot of interest in small family enterprises. I had some experience when I was working in state government for a little while where we funded a, an entity called the Family Enterprise Institute in a, in a uh, inner city community in Chicago. And um, I mean, the the, the product program was over-enrolled uh, almost immediately because of all the interest. So, uh, and people uh, might start cafes, they might uh, form a, uh, they might produce food that they might uh Consume for themselves, but also put some on the market uh, to sell through the local farmers' market. Uh, there's all kinds of there's an explosion of the kinds of businesses that can be run from homes now. Uh, there's a lot of literature out there on how to do that, and you don't need advanced college degrees to do a lot of those kinds of business to set up those kinds of businesses. So there's a lot of energy there in the inner city community for for this, and uh, and also some assets kind of laying around because of the community has not been uh, uh, invested in for some time. Uh, uh, another project I'm involved with right now is, is one where um, it's called Sweet Beginnings, and it's an inner-city program in Chicago, and uh, there they use vacant land to, um, uh, to run an apiary and grow honey, and, uh, mm. and then people are involved in um, mm. business. It's actually an LLC, a limited liability company, Sweet Beginnings LLC, they make um, personal care products from the honey, very good quality ones. And gotten consultation from how to set up a, you know, how to do this well from really good companies. For instance, Boeing has been involved in this, uh, and the city of Chicago has been investing in this. So um, there you have just land that uh, produce was used has been used to produce honey, and then uh, the honey has been used to produce good quality personal care products that are that are that are sold. In a competitive way with uh, other, you know, products out there on the market. Rich, give us a closing thought. Okay. Well, with all this is really, Steve, what, what all this is really about is is the productive family. Uh, the 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 community needs to function well. The community and the kids in the community is need families to be lifted up and supported as producers or co-producers of everything really that, that the community needs to uh, to work well. And that is that is teaching kids good behavioral principles. Um, it, it includes making communities safe. It includes helping the citizenship develop and also, uh, of course, helping the, the community's own economic vitality uh, remain sustainable. Um, so, you know, at the bottom, the productive family needs to be focused on, lifted up, not forgotten, and really looked at very seriously by the by the professionals in community development, but also anyone else in the in the political arena or just in the in, in local 
towns and villages, anyone interested in families, we really need to be kind of locked in and concerned about rebuilding the capacities of families to be producers. The title of the book, Restoring Power to Parents and Places, and the author is Richard S. Cordish. And Rich, tell us how to get your book. You, uh, it's available online through um, iUniverse. Uh, my own website um, can provide you a link to it, richardcordish.com. Uh, it's also available through other online retailers such as Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Thank you for being with us, Rich. I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Steve. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.